You have put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise, a sound that resonates, that all of heaven and earth may worship you. We tread the hills to meet with you, to see your majesty in all that surrounds us. For it speaks and displays the eternal God of ages, creator, author, victor. In love, you established an everlasting covenant with your people, and it's your love that captivates us. As children of the King, we rush in as waves unrestrained, overcome, overwhelmed, that the King crowned in glory and splendor would reach down to place a crown upon our heads. So we raise our banner, the banner we boldly stand under, the banner of Jesus Christ, from dusk to dawn, from age to age, your praise resounds in all the earth, deliverer, redeemer, ruler of an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. We trust in the name of Christ Jesus, the only King, forever. Welcome to Zion's Redemption Radio. This is Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can find this at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. And the text will also be posted on my Facebook wall at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. You can also find the text and the audio to this radio program on iTunes at Fundamentally Mormon and in the different Facebook groups that I am an admin of. Some of those groups are LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions, LDS Gospel Mysteries, Latter-day Unity, and others. You can find the pages that I admin also on my Facebook wall. And if you enjoy this program, please friend request me or follow me and uh, make me one of your close friends. We try to put out as many episodes as we can during the week. But I'm thankful for you to be here today. Let's get right into the reading today. We are going to be reading out of Ogden Kraut's books. You can find his books for free to read online at ogdenkraut.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. Welcome to the program. This is fundamentally mormon on zion's redemption radio network i'm your host mark lichten walter uh today we're going to be continuing a house in order which is part two of this chapter uh we'll be uh, starting on page 263 and hopefully going to the end of the chapter um i just i didn't have enough time to finish the recording yesterday and then i overdid it with uh how many how many uh how much information i actually downloaded 
and it screwed up, so I wasn't able to, to do the program the way I usually do it. And then the other thing is, I usually put these out at 6 o'clock in the morning, but I got home at 3 in the morning after working from 2 p.m. to 3 a.m., and I couldn't stay awake. So uh, yesterday's program was a little different, um, just as far as the introduction and the end of music goes, uh, simply because I had to upload the whole program the whole recording, and I couldn't screw around with it, and then I had to go to sleep. I couldn't stay up. So anyway, um, so we're going to be uh, hopefully finishing this part two of The House in Order, which is the second last chapter in the book United Order. And like I said, we'll start on page 263 and then go to the end of the chapter. So we'll just get right into the reading at this point. All right, let's see here. Well, yeah, we'll start on page 263. The one mighty and strong will come to give the righteous people a chance to do what God has commanded them. Men must have faith in God to give them valiant leaders and correct principles. Brigham Young gave the following counsel and advice, quote, I want you to have faith enough concerning myself and my counselors for the eyes are for the for the Lord to remove remove us out of the way if we are not magnifying our calling and put men in our places that will do right journal of discourses volume 9 page 142 if you have leaders who do not teach you the words of life and salvation who do not give you the words of the Lord, why not have faith sufficient to remove them out of the way and have better men? If this people are righteous and have any leaders that are not capable of dictating you, why not stretch forth or stretch your faith to the heavens for God to remove them and give you men that are capable of leading you? Journal of Discourses, Volume 6, page 173. See also Mark chapter 6, verse 4, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, verse 46 of the Inspired Version of the JST. Um, God doesn't do that, and he never has done that um, in the scriptures, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong, but God values our free agency enough to where he allows us to to teach what we think is true or to lead the church astray if we want um, or if we're not going to get revelation from him and we think something's true and then we teach it. Like Brigham Young taught the Adam-God doctrine and he taught it as truth. But the church today will say that that was just his theory, but God didn't stop Brigham Young, whether it was a theory or doctrine, he didn't stop Brigham Young from teaching that. Um, in all ages of history, he allows the church, once he tries to set it in order, he allows the church to go along their merry way, and he tries to give them prophets from time to time to correct them on their path, but usually they continue to go out and do what, you know, veer off the path that God has for them to follow, which is the true Hebrew uh, the true Hebrew meaning of the word iniquity. That's where 
God gives you a path, he get, he tells you what to do, and then you go off and you do what you you want to do. You veer off the path. That's iniquity. And he's allowed that through all time. And, like, he'll send prophets. He sent Jeremiah, and he sent um, Ezekiel, and he sends Isaiah, and he sends all these other minor prophets to try to get the people to repent. But he always sends people that aren't part of the hierarchy or the leadership, and then they don't want to listen to him because... He doesn't have the correct status, the prophet that is sent. Right? Samuel the Lamanite, nobody even knew where he came from. Uh, you know, he does his thing, and then he goes back off into the wilderness, and luckily for him, he didn't have to mess with, he told the church what they needed to hear, and then he was done with his job. That, by, by the way, as far as I'm concerned, is like the best like calling of a prophet there is like where you're able to like give the people their message and then go away instead of being like Jeremiah who couldn't just go away and he wanted to he wanted to stop preaching to the people to repent you know but he said that the word of the Lord was like a fire pent up in his bones and basically he couldn't stop preaching to the people but they still wouldn't listen to him. They had these prophets at the time who called themselves prophets. And they prophesied lies to the people. And the people chose to follow the lies. But we know that Jeremiah, looking back, was the correct prophet that God sent, not these other people. <laughs> Jeremiah said that those people spoke smooth things to the people. And the people liked the smooth things, you know. So basically... They don't want to listen to Jeremiah because Jeremiah is telling them, to re telling them to repent. And he's telling them that the people are under condemnation from God, but the people don't want to hear it. They're just going to do what they want to do. You know, and uh, luckily for Jeremiah, after the Babylonian captivity, we know that he went down into Egypt with a group of other Israelites that like basically got out of Dodge when Babylon came in to destroy things. But other prophets weren't so lucky like Daniel and others that went, had to go into Babylonian captivity. And like Daniel, he became a eunuch. I'm pretty sure that wasn't Daniel's will. You know, and then the three, uh, the three, um, not Nephites, um, his three friends, who I can't remember what their Hebrew names were, but the Babylonians gave them new names of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They became eunuchs. If you don't know what that is, look it up, because I'm not going to explain it to you. There might be kids listening. Anyway, but, like, that's not what they wanted. They wanted to have children. They wanted to have families. They... But they were taken into captivity because of the disobedience of of the people, not necessarily because of their own disobedience. But God always sends these these prophets from among the rank and file, and then the people don't listen because God would send the the leaders of the church of whatever age that we're talking about where they need to be corrected. But these leaders get so high minded. And they get so, um, they think that they are better than everyone else. And God can't speak to them. They they harden their hearts and their minds against the revelations of God. And they're the, they continue to be the leaders. And they continue to act righteous. I mean, 
All of these prophets that Jeremiah had to deal with that weren't real prophets, but they pretended to be prophets and everybody followed them. Nobody followed Jeremiah, who was the actual prophet from God. And these other prophets prophesied lies. They made up stuff. They tried to they act the role of uh, the prophet, seers, and revelator for the church of their day. You know, in around 600 BC, they acted the part, and the people listened to them, and they refused to listen to Jeremiah. And that's the same, same exact thing that's going on today. The people want to hear the smooth things and the nice things, but they don't want to hear anything that's going to cause them to repent and turn away. And then the the leaders that are so-called prophets today will tell you, well... Brigham Young changed the endowment. Uh, so, like, why can't we change the endowment? Or it's some crap. They make up excuses as to why they do what they do, and the people just walk along. Oh, we love the prophet so much. We have a prophet that speaks to God, even though he doesn't give any thus saith the Lord Revelations. Even though uh, he doesn't have any dreams or visions to edify the people of the church. Um, he'll talk about uh, airplane crashes that were miracles where they were able to put a fire out of an exploding engine on an airplane back in 1976. And we had to, like, have an emergency landing in a farmer's field. Now, none of the actual reports show that any of that happened but the people love the story and they don't want to research or investigate what really did happen. And then when you have people like myself or other individuals bring it up and show you the reports and say, look, they didn't, they didn't land their airplane in a farmer's field. There was no exploding engine with fuel, fire and all of that, you know, no dive. Like all of that stuff would have to be reported to the NTSB which is a federal agency that would all have to be reported. None of it was. Um, Skywest is the uh, the operator that eventually got bought out by uh, Delta that flew from Salt Lake City to St. George. They are controlled by the federal government under certain, uh, certain um, agencies, and there has to be reporting. If there's a dive bomb of a passenger airplane to put out a fire where a, an airplane engine exploded and there was fuel that would have to be in a report if they actually did land in a farmer's field like certain leaders want to try to tell you happened that would have to be in a report but the fact of the matter is there was some uh there was some engine uh fluttering and I can't remember what they call it now. And uh, they could have gone on to St. George, but just for precaution. Now, this was a twin-engine airplane, and one of the engines was having a little bit of a problem. For precautionary measures, they landed at the Delta Municipal Airport, which I suppose was a farmer's field at one time. 
But when they landed there, there was a runway there, and they were able to dispatch another airplane to go pick up the people, and they were, you know, they flew the other airplane in to pick up the passengers, and then they continued on to St. George, and then they did whatever they had to do mechanically to the airplane, which could have continued on. You know, but if if you tell that to most of these diehard Mormons, they won't listen to you because the prophet could never lead you astray. Even though Brigham Young, according to these guys now, would they would say Brigham Young led the church astray with seven deadly heresies. Adam God doctrine being one of them, blood atonement, polygamy, whatever it is. I can't remember now, but seven deadly heresies that the leader of the church, who was a leader from the 1840s into 1877, longer than any other leader, prophet, seer, and revelator of the church that we've had, he led the church astray. God didn't take him out of the way. But then they want to say that they can't lead you astray because they're the prophecyers and revelators of God while they throw Brigham Young and others under the bus. Okay, let's get back into the reading. If you have leaders who do not teach you the words of life and salvation, who do not give you the words of the Lord, why not have faith sufficient to remove them out of the way and have better men? If this people are righteous and have any leaders that are not capable of dictating you, why not stretch your faith to the heavens for God to remove them and give you men that are capable of leading you? Journal of Discourses, Volume 6, page 173. I've already, I've already read all of that. The Lord gave a prophecy pertaining to the setting and order of his house in the parable of the vineyard, which depicts the final stages of Zion's redemption. This parable is found in section 101 of the Doctrine and Covenants from verses 43 through 62. And it's summarized in the following paragraph. The servants of the vineyard began to say among themselves, What need hath my Lord of some of the things which have been appointed to them? They began to throw out one thing and drop off another until it was apparent that they hearkened not unto the commandments of their Lord. Now let me just stop. What need have we of an endowment that takes all day long? Why don't we just trim it up and turn it into something that will suit the attention spans of the modern-day Mormon? And we'll just get rid of hours and hours and hours of the endowment because we don't need it. Even though that's what God gave, we don't really need it. So let's just get rid of the preacher and get rid of Satan and get rid of the penalties, which, by the way are completely misconstrued as to what they are. You would suffer your life to be taken by an enemy of the church rather than divulge the sacred signs and tokens. Not that if somebody divulges the signs and tokens that you have to go kill them. That's never what ever, ever it ever said, ever. 
that is a twisting to pervert the right way of the Lord into uh, into cast darkness upon the light. But these wicked servants in the vineyard, they say, what need hath my Lord of some of these things which God has appointed to us? Let's get rid of this, and we're going to get rid of that. And it's the same thing in Isaiah chapter 28, where the drunkards of Ephraim go on and all of their tables are full of vomit and filth. And what is the vomit and filth? It's the meat of the gospel that they're rejecting from the church. It's the endowment in its full form. It's the preacher in the endowment and the penalties and Satan with his teaching principle that he actually, God allowed to have it in the endowment. It's all for teaching principles. It's the Adam-God doctrine and the law of plural celestial marriage and, and consecration and united orders. The list goes on and on and on as to what the vomit is that the drunkards of Ephraim no longer want to have in their church or in the kingdom. So they just get rid of it and then they look upon the meat of the gospel with disdainment, and they look upon it as filth. Take, for instance, plural celestial marriage, the law of adoption, united orders, law of consecration, but especially plural celestial marriage. That is a doctrine that is taught in the house of God and... One by one, all of these different groups that came out of Nauvoo, they just they either rejected it right off or they reject it later on. And they, over time, they look at it as the only people who practice plural celestial marriage are apostates, even though the apostates were sent off by the, the church to continue to keep the, the principle alive when the government is coming down on them. And there has to be a separation between the church leadership and the people who are keeping the principle alive. And they say, the church leaders say, we will, when everything's worked out, we will, uh, you know, you'll come back into the church and you'll still be Mormons and it'll be fine. And then that doesn't happen. And then they start calling them fundamentalists and uh, persecuting them and calling them apostates, even though they're doing exactly what what they were asked to do. And then many of them have never even been members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But for some reason, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints thinks that it has authority over them where it can persecute them and go after them for what? For not obeying some theocratic dictate of a church that has no power of the government? Oh, except for there's people in the government who are LDS who want to go after polygamists. You know, instead of letting people have their religion and believe what they want, which is talked about in the Articles of Faith, but we're that's something we say, but it's not something we actually believe. Because if they're fundamentalists and they don't follow the dictates of whatever the modern church says, then... Uh, then we got to get rid of them. 
Because the Baptists and the Methodists and the Pentecostals, they can believe whatever they want. But if somebody believes Joseph Smith is a true prophet, then we have to have control over them because we're the prophets, seers, and revelators of the church. You have no authority, President Nelson, over anybody but yourself. The only authority that you have is the authority that people give to you that follow you. And every other leader of the LDS church, whether you're a ward bishop or a branch president or a stake president or an area 70, the only authority that you have over people is the, is the authority that people give to you. Period. You think that you're going to punish people who don't care about what you have to say? Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of LDS people out there who do care what you what you have to say, and they think that you have authority over them, but that's the matrix. Because they can continue to go on and live their life. Oh, but there's the fact that ward members and church members will ostracize you and will cause all kinds of havoc in your life if you do not go along with the brethren. I'm pretty sure that that was Satan's way. That does not meet what we know of the Father and the Son. And when your fruits are the fruits of Satan, then he is your Father. And that's the kind of stuff that Jesus talked about with the Jews that made him so pissed off. But it was true then, and it's true now. Anyway, but back to this quote. They began to throw out one thing and drop off another until it was apparent that they hearkened not unto the commandments of their Lord. And eventually their enemies came in and almost totally destroyed their works. Page 264. In this stage of the parable, the Lord of the vineyard returned and rebuked them for the great evil which had overtaken his vineyard. And he said, Ought ye not to have done even as I have commanded you? And it was clearly evident that his vineyard was out of order. Now let me just say, this is a parable, but this is how God works. There are people who are over the vineyard. There are stewards who are over the vineyard. And when they go out of the way, God doesn't come to them individually. He sends a prophet from among the people like Samuel the Lamanite, like the sons of Alma, like Abinadi. Abinadi went to King Noah. King Noah was over the priests of Mosiah, I think. But there was priesthood in his church. They were out of the way. They were doing wicked and corrupt things. And God sent Abinadi to get them to repent. And instead of repenting, they think that because they have the authority that they can do whatever they want. And how dare this unknown individual come with a message from God, we will kill him. And they did. They uh, they 
burned, they scourged his skin with faggots. And what that is, is that um, you have a burning stick that is red hot on the end and you stab him with it. Over and over and over, it's the it's the death of a thousand wounds. That's what happened to Abinadi. And interesting note, we know that that was something that happened among the the people of this continent before Christopher Columbus came. That was one of the ways that that cruel individuals would execute other individuals. That's something that did happen. So. That whole idea. A lot of people think that Abinadi was burned like at the stake and whatever. That's not how he died. Anyway, continuing on. Who is this servant who would gather together the residue of my servants and redeem Zion? Many have claimed to be this one mighty and strong, or this servant who is mighty and strong, but so far they've all failed to accomplish this great work. According to the Lord, Verily, verily, I say unto you, my servant Baruch Al, uh, which is the secret name of Joseph Smith Jr., is the man whom I likened the servant to whom the Lord of the vineyard spake in the parable which I have given unto you. Doctrine and Covenants, section 103, verse 21. Now, I do have to say one thing. One thing that drives me a little bit insane about the revelation of section 85 of the Doctrine and Covenants and Isaiah chapter 28. Jesus Christ says that he will send one mighty and strong to set the house of God in order, which implies that it will be out of order. But never were, ne- never anywhere in that revelation does he, said, does he say he will send the one mighty and strong. Because the one mighty and strong is not an earth an office that one person holds. The fact of the matter is, what I was shown in 2013 when I was caught up and God said, kneel down before me and ask me who you are. I was taken up in the spirit and I saw a vision of the past. And I saw the council before the rebellion. And I saw God the creator, God the redeemer, and God the witness standing upon uh, a platform in front of a massive congregation of people. And God told me that basically the first presidency of this earth, they are mighty and strong for this earth. And that there is a quorum of 12 who stood in front of them, and they were also mighty and strong for this earth. So there are at least 15 male who are mighty and strong that I know of. So when God sends multiple mighty and strong ones to try to get the people to repent and turn back to the truth. I'm not going to say whether or not they are truly from him or not. But the fact of the matter is we shouldn't have to have 
a prophet who is mighty and strong that comes out of the wilderness like Abinadi or like Samuel the Lamanite to get the people to repent. That shouldn't have to be a thing. I shouldn't have to leave my throne in the heavens and come down upon the earth and find out that, that the people are in iniquity. They are not doing as God has commanded. They make up excuses as to why they don't do as God has commanded. The same thing that happened with the people of Jeremiah right before the Babylonian captivity. God gave them commandments and they were not following them and they made up all kinds of excuses as to why they didn't have to do whatever they were told to by God. And the, and the leaders spoke smooth things to them and they didn't get the people to repent. So God had to send Jeremiah. Now we as a people think that we're so righteous and we're the one true church, but we do the same thing that those people did back then. And so from time to time, God will send you prophets from out of the wilderness. And maybe they are, maybe they are prophets. Maybe they're not prophets. But the fact of the matter is, I shouldn't have to come here and point all of these things out to try to get you people to do what God has asked you to do. And I shouldn't have to point out that your leaders do not get you to do not teach you about Zion's redemption. They don't teach you about all of these meats of the gospel that you look upon as filth and vomit. They do not repent and they think that they are so blessed to be the one true people. Are we not the children of Abraham? Our father is Abraham, but your father is the... I mean, it's the same crap in all ages of the history of this earth. And then those of you who actually do know something about these matters, you use that to build yourself up with pride, but you don't. You're not obedient to what God has commanded. I shouldn't have to be doing this work, but here I am. And yes, I was sent by God, the master of the vineyard, to come and do this work. And I know of others who are mighty and strong who have come to do this work in all ages of the history of this earth. God never said he would send the one mighty and strong because there is more than one. But it just so happens that now you've got the witness of the Father, the second witness of the Father, the testator, speaking to you directly live, sprinkling my word. Yes, I am the testator of, among the nations of the earth through this, this format. And still... You will not repent. You will not shema. You will not listen and obey. You will not turn back to the truth. And even those among you who know what the truth is, you don't, you're not obedient. You don't walk towards the truth. You listen 
from afar. Just like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and many others who heard Jesus Christ and they were very knowledgeable but they listened from afar and they were not obedient to what God in the form of God the Redeemer Jesus Christ Messiah Ben Judah they were not obedient now maybe after his death they were I don't know if you're going to get that opportunity when the two witnesses die in the streets that's when great fear falls upon those people who see this happen because they will know that these two prophets proclaim to be the person of God the witness and another witness and they will be they'll be very happy that that these two individuals are dead and then lo and behold three and a half days later here they are God raising them up being marred beyond description being marred not only physically but but uh, their reputations are marred completely and uh God raises them up in perfect resurrection in front of the whole world to see. And at that point, great fear falls upon the people. And at that point, those who were obedient, who were baptized and remained faithful to the ministry of the two witnesses, they are caught up in resurrection and taken off the earth. That's when your rapture event happens. And then get great destruction falls upon the people and they are exceedingly fearful because they realize that they've made a huge mistake. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they probably knew that they made a mistake after Jesus Christ was resurrected, but the nation continued to go on. The apostles were running around teaching the people. Jesus Christ appears 40 days and 40 nights. Which, by the way, we don't have a record of actually what what Jesus Christ taught during those 40 days and 40 nights. But there wasn't complete destruction. The destruction wasn't given until 40 years after the fact, which was one generation. And then Jerusalem was completely destroyed and the temple was completely destroyed. But when the two witnesses are killed, you're not going to have that nice 40-year generation where you can... Do whatever you're going to do. And when you realize what is happening, you're going to realize that, oh crap, God just got them out of here. It's time for the destruction and we're going to live through it as long as we live through it and then we'll die and we'll go to hell. Because we're disobedient servants who do not listen to God's servants when God sends servants among you. That's what you're going to say to yourself. Continuing on with the reading, Joseph Smith Smith still holds the keys of this dispensation according to Doctrine and Covenants section 90 verse 3. So he is responsible for regulating or setting in order the Lord's house. At the proper time, Joseph Smith will direct the gathering of the saints and proclaim the principles that will usher in the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. And that's Ogden 
crowd's opinion and he's entitled to it. You know why I don't believe that, but we'll continue on. Joseph relating related the following dream, which he had just before he was martyred. Quote, I was back in Kirtland, Ohio, and thought I would take a walk out by myself and view my old farm, which I found grown up with weeds and brambles and altogether bearing evidence of neglect and want of culture. I went into the barn, which I found without floor or doors, with the weather boring off and was altogether in keeping with the with the farm on page 265 while I viewed the desolation around me and was contemplating how it might be recovered from the curse upon it there came rushing into the barn a company of furious men who commenced to pick a quarrel with me so these men that he's seeing all of these leaders from all of the different branches of the restoration who have neglected to do what God has asked him to do, who, you know, Joseph Smith received all of this instruction, and these people say, oh, we don't, have, we don't have to worry about that, or Joseph Smith didn't really teach that, or, oh, that was for another people. These are, the, these are the leaders that Joseph Smith is seeing coming in to pick a fight with him, because, like, Joseph Smith is, in the stream, he's coming, and he's trying to figure out how in the world... Am I going to fix this farm up when it's been neglected so much, you know? And he's like coming back to set the house of God in order, according to this dream. And whether he does that or a servant is sent to do that, you know, whatever. But so this dream happens and these people who are the leaders of the church, uh, the different churches not just one. They come in and they try to pick a fight with Joseph Smith because he's trying to set things back in order and they don't think that they're out of order. They think that they're righteous and they think that they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do and they make up their little excuses as to why they're not doing what God has told them to do through the prophet Joseph Smith. And when Joseph Smith comes, he's like, I got to fix this. You know, things aren't exactly right. Things are out of order. And they want to pick a fight with them because they're the leaders of the church, don't you see? And they're going to do what they want to do. And I'm not just talking about, like I said, not just one group. God said that the house of God would be out of order. The house does not imply just a church. It is all of the people of the restoration, whatever group that they're in, whether they're fundamentalists or mainstream Mormons or community of Christ or the Strangites or the Cutlerites or Denver Snuffer and his group, or any of these other groups, they they all have this authority claim, these authority claims, and they're going to do what they want to do. And some of them want to try to get back to the way Joseph Smith taught things, but then they, they're Judas goats. They will tell you all kinds of truth, and you'll feel the truth, because the Spirit testifies of truth no matter who states it, but in key points of doctrine, they look upon the meat of the gospel as filth and vomit. See Isaiah chapter 28, the drunkards of Ephraim. And they are Judas goats on key points of doctrine. 
and they try to get you to follow them like Denver Snuffer, but they reject things and they lie about things. Just taking Denver Snuffer, for instance. Denver Snuffer proclaims that, uh, you know, polygamy is not right, even though that contradicts the Torah. And Joseph Smith said if they if they contradict the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants, you set them down as imposters. You know, or they they reject Section 132, Or, but I understand why they do, because Section 132 contra- contradicts the Prophet Jacob in the Book of Mormon. Book of Mormon. Sorry, in the Book of Mormon. Jacob receives a revelation from God where Jacob is told that, you know, basically what they're doing, what they're doing as a people, they, they're living polygamy in a way that is not in keeping with God's prior commandments. God gave us commandments on how to live plural marriage in the Torah, and he also said that there's certain ways that you're not supposed to live it. And one of the main things that God has a problem with is when people multiply wives. And that is when they, they, um, they multiply wives to the point where they're not keeping the rest of the Torah in the fact that, uh, if you have multiple wives, you're supposed to, do certain things for them. And one of the things that basically puts a capstone on everything is you can't take more wives than you can satisfy in their marriage duties. And what it's talking about is sexual, the sexual desire of the wives. If you've got one man who has four wives and those women have sexual desires, which women do, and so do men, um, but you're not able to satisfy them in the way that they need to be satisfied as women, um, then you should not be taking a fifth wife. You should not be taking 30 wives or 40 wives or 100 wives or 700 wives as Solomon did. And because David and Solomon multiplied wives, which is expressly forbidden in the Torah, they were actually breaking the Torah and they were in sin. So the true definition of sin is that God gives you instructions. That's what the Torah means. The Torah is the instructions. Anytime God gives us instructions, that is, that is, is, uh, you know, Torah. That's God's rules and regulations or his laws that he gives the people. And when we as a people disobey them or break those rules, that is sin. David and Solomon multiplied wives and they were under condemnation for that sin. If they had a couple of wives, that wouldn't have been a sin. In fact, the prophet, I think it was Nathan, said... That he that God would have given him more wives, you know, and talking about Bathsheba, and that was that was a sin of David. But Solomon also had many wives, and that was a sin. That the the sin of multiplying wives was by both David and Solomon. And in the revelation of God given to the prophet Jacob in the Book of Mormon, 
we are told that David and Solomon did sin in what they did. But in section 132, which Brigham Young said came from Joseph Smith, but it wasn't given until, what, 1853, I think? It wasn't made, it wasn't given to the church until long after the fact. But in that revelation, we see that Jesus supposedly says that David and Solomon did not sin. And that David did not sin other than in the fact that he took Bathsheba and did what he did to Uriah. Of course, we know that's a sin, but section 132 is going to say that that David and Solomon taking all those wives wasn't a sin, which it clearly is in the Torah. That's called multiplying wives. And the revelation given to the prophet Jacob in the Book of Mormon, God calls that a sin. The Book of Mormon is true. And if a revelation comes along like section 132 and it contradicts former revelation, which it does, it contradicts the Torah and it also contradicts the Book of Mormon, then you have to throw it out, at least in part. But what Brigham Young did, he was a sneaky, sneaky guy. There were revelations that were received that he through by the wayside. But what he did in the Doctrine and Covenants with the revelations he kept, he took multiple revelations and and twisted them and put them together, which were not meant to be put together, and then he added things to it which were not from God. Now, for all of those Brighamite fundamentalists out there, they're going to say, oh, no, Brigham Young was a prophet. Oh, he was the Lord's anointed. Which gets me back to the other point. Jesus Christ tells them in section 124 to build a temple whereby the Most High can come dwell therein that he might restore that which was lost unto you or that which was taken away even the fullness of the priesthood. Now if you go to Zechariah chapter 4 verse 14 it talks about the Lord of the whole earth who is the Most High and his two anointed ones. The two anointed ones are Mashiach ben Judah, or Messiah ben Joseph, uh, Judah and Messiah ben Joseph, Mashiach ben Yosef. This is the first presidency of this earth. You've got God, the creator, who is the father and the most high of this earth. You've got God, the redeemer, who is the anointed one of God, who is the first witness of the father, who is Jesus Christ, or Yeshua. And then you've got God the Witness, who is Messiah ben Yosef, who is is the Holy Ghost, who is a member of the First Presidency for this earth. And he comes down in the flesh, just like Joseph Smith said he would, to come to do the same or similar things that Jesus did. So in section 124, when Jesus is talking about the Most High, that he, not... Not that Jesus said he would do it, but he said, build a temple unto my name, unto Jesus' name, whereby the Most High, third person, can come to other end, that he, the Most High, would restore that which was lost unto you, or that which was taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood.
The fact of the matter is, section 124, Jesus says, if you don't do what I say, you'll be rejected as a church with your dead, and that's what happened. Jesus said if they were obedient, he would fight their battles for them. That's not what happened. They did not remain in their place, which was the center place of Nauvoo, which they would have if they built the temple where the Father could come restore the fullness of the priesthood. But that didn't happen. And Jesus said, if you don't do what I say, you'll be rejected as a church with your dead. And they were rejected from receiving the fullness of the priesthood in that place. Joseph Smith was the last of the Lord's anointed until God saw fit and it was time for God to send one mighty and strong who was an Abinadi who would come to the church or a, uh, a Samuel the Lamanite type figure who would come from outside of the hierarchy of the church and he would call the people to repentance. And that's what you're hearing right now. That is what is going on right now. God is sending a servant, a witness to you that is calling you to repentance. But Brigham Young was not a prophet, seer, and revelator, and he was not the Lord's anointed, and neither was John Taylor, even though John Taylor did receive prophecy and revelation from God, but he was not the Lord's anointed. You can be a prophet, and you should be a prophet, but it doesn't mean you're the Lord's anointed. But these men claim to be the Lord's anointed, but they don't have the fruits of being prophets, seers, and revelators. And they are the men that are coming in this dream trying to pick a fight with Joseph Smith when he comes back, whether it's him or a servant that is sent by him, whatever. And they're, they're trying to pick a fight because they have charge of the farm and they're going to do what they're going to do and it's their time to rule and reign and when God tries to send a prophet among them to set the house of God in order they want to flip out and try to make all kinds of excuses and they will lie to you and they will lead you astray and keep points of doctrine as Judas goats to keep their power and their authority as false prophets So that the house of God is not set in order because really behind it all is Satan. Satan does not want Zion to be redeemed. He does not want you to follow God's laws that he has given you for the redemption of Zion that Joseph Smith received to restore the house of God on the earth. And each of these individuals who leads these different branches of the restoration, they don't want to give up their power. Now, they want you to believe that they are prophets, seers, and revelators, but they don't have the fruits of being prophets, seers, and revelators. So when God sends a prophet to set the house of God in order, they all flip out. And that's why Isaiah sees just a small remnant or residue being led into the highways of the top of the mountains and into the desert places where Zion is born. Where Zion is redeemed among a small group of people. People who come out of these different groups that are leading them astray continually. Continuing on. The leader of the party ordered me to leave the barn and farm and said it was none of mine and that I must give up all hope of ever ever possessing it. And remember, this is Joseph Smith's dream. This happened right before he died. I told him the farm was given to me by the church 
And although I had not had any use of it for some time, I still had not sold it. And according to righteous principles, it belonged to me or the church. He then grew furious and began to rail upon me and threaten me and said it never did belong to me or the church. See, these are these different leaders that come along and they try to say, you know, this restoration is mine now because I'm the Lord's anointed and I'm the one that God has sent to lead the people. And Joseph Smith, I'm thankful for what you did, but it doesn't belong to you anymore, right? He then grew furious and began to rail upon me and threaten me and said it never did belong to me or to the church. I then told him that I did not think it was worth contending about and that I had no desire to live upon it in its present state. And if he thought he had a better right, I would not quarrel with him about it, but leave. But my assurance that I would not trouble him at present did not seem to satisfy him as he seemed determined to quarrel with me and threaten threatened me with the destruction of my body. While I was thus engaged, pouring out his bitter words upon me, a ramble rushed in and nearly filled the barn and drew out their knives and began to quarrel among themselves for the premises and for a moment forgot about me, at which time I took opportunity to walk out of the barn barn about up to my ankles in mud. Page 266. When I was a little distant from the barn, I heard them screeching and screaming in the very distress in a very distressed manner, as it appeared they had engaged in a general fight with their knives while they were thus engaged, the dream or vision ended. And you can find that recorded in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 393 and 394. If Joseph Smith were were to return to the church today or in the near future, could that be a fulfillment of his dream? So that's Ogden Crow asking the question. The great judgments of the last days are to begin upon the house of God first and then go out to the rest of the world. And upon my house shall it begin, and from my house shall it go forth, saith the Lord. First among those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name and have not known me, and have blasphemed against me in the midst of my house, saith the Lord. Doctrine and Covenants, section 112. Uh, uh, verses 23 through 26. Many years after this revelation was given to Joseph Smith, the revelation was received by Wilford Woodruff, indicating this setting in order would still take place among the Latter-day Saints. The Lord said to him, Let my servants search the word of the Lord and treasure up wisdom and be prepared for that which is to come. As I have decreed, so shall my judgments begin at the house of God, judgments will begin upon my house, and from thence will they go forth unto the world, and the wicked cannot escape. So that's page 267, but you can find that quoted, Journal of Wilford Woodruff, page 191, and that revelation was given on January 26th, 1880. And the next book that we're going to be reading is the 
1880 to 1890 revelations that were received by pretty much by Wilfred Woodruff and John Taylor, which the church wants to hide because it doesn't go along with the narrative that they want you to follow. So we're going to cover that on the uh, in the next book that we that we do. Now this is the second to last chapter of United Order, and then we have um one more chapter, the conclusion, and then as soon as we're done with that, we'll get into revelations between the 1880s and the 1890s. So. Heber C. Kimball also prophesied of this event and said, quote, There will not many calamities come upon the nations of the earth until this people first feel their, their effects, and when hard times commence, they will begin at the house of God, and if there is any house of God on the earth, where is it? It is here, is it not? Deseret News, March 2nd, 1856. And again, another apostle mentioned this house cleaning by the Lord and foretold, quote, I will say when this nation, having sown to the wind, reaps the whirlwind, when brother takes up sword against brother, when father contends against son and son against father, when he who will not take up his sword against his neighbor must needs flee to Zion for safety, then I would say to my friends, come to Utah, for the judgments of God commencing at the house of the Lord will have passed away. Journal of Discourses, volume 26, page 334. Heber C. Kimball also said that the time will come when the Lord will choose a people out of this people upon whom he will bestow his choicest blessings. Journal of Discourses, volume 11, page 145. See, Heber C. Kimball was one of the apostles of the church back in the days of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And when they came out to Utah, they realized that, that you know, basically the Latter-day Saints have been given the instruction that God has given them free agency to not obey them and that it will... It'll basically be that there has to be a people chosen from out of this people who God will bless because they will be obedient to his instructions. But they're not going to do it in the church because it, it, at that time, you know, I hadn't gotten to this point, but, but now it is that if you try to be obedient to God's commandments you're going to be excommunicated from the church. You can be obedient to the milk of the gospel all you want, but if you try to keep the meat of the gospel, the drunkards of Ephraim, who are drunk on the spirit of Babylon the Great, the priest and the prophet are out of the way, which is what the Revelation says, and they are not going to allow you, as an individual with free agency, to live God's laws in the church. They will excommunicate you. Heck, if you even talk about the Adam-God doctrine in the church, they might excommunicate you for just even talking about it. I wasn't teaching the Adam-God doctrine 
but I believed it, and that was one of the things that made my state president in Vermont extremely angry. My aunt, back in the 1980s, um, didn't realize that the Adam-God doctrine was so taboo, and she talked about it with her bishop, and he actually had the audacity to say, if it wasn't for the fact that you have seven kids, I would excommunicate you on the spot for even bringing it up. Which he can't do. There's There are certain rules and procedures for which... But they don't follow those rules and procedures. I was supposed to have a trial myself, and I wasn't even allowed to go to it. They don't care about the rules and procedures because they're going to do what they're going to do, and they don't think that there's judgment, and they don't think that there is any repercussions for what they are doing or how they do things, but there is. There is a God in the heavens who is a perfect judge, and he sees all things. And so these men who think that they can just do whatever they want and they don't have to follow the rules and procedures laid out for them in the scriptures, in the instructions, you know, they are, they're going to have to be held accountable for what they have done. They don't think that there's any repercussions for their actions. Oh, there is. It's just that it doesn't always hit right, right after you do whatever it is that you do. And hopefully you repent. But there's still consequences for your actions. I'm speaking to leaders of the, uh, to the different groups of the Restoration. Heber C. Kimball also said that the time will come when the Lord will choose a people out of this people upon whom he will bestow his choicest blessings. Journal of Discourses, volume 11, page 145. Brigham Young added a prophecy about this great day by saying, quote, and we're on page 268, if you want to read it for yourself in the United Order. But anyway, he said, quote, God will preserve a portion of this people, of the meek and the humble, to bear off the kingdom to the inhabitants of the earth, and will defend his priesthood. Contributor, volume 10, page 362. Now, a lot of people think that they are the meek and the humble because they submit themselves to the leaders of the church. But are they meek and humble to the instructions that God has given to them? It has come to the point in our day where you cannot be meek and humble to both the church and God. I know a lot of people think that you can, but if you are being meek and humble to the leaders of the church and you're obeying and submitting yourself to them then you are rejecting the meat of the gospel, which they look upon as filth and vomit. You cannot serve them and serve God. You think you can, but you can't, because the house of God is out of order. Continuing on, Brigham Young stated, I have had visions and revelations introducing or instructing me to how to organize this people so that they can live like the family of heaven. But I cannot do it while so much selfishness and wickedness reign in the elders of Israel. There are many great and glorious privileges for the people which they are not prepared to receive. Journal of Discourses, Volume 9, page 269. To live like the family of heaven is to live the united order. It has always been that way and will always be. Nothing else has been substituted or replaced, nor will it be. Because if you're going to live 
or if you're going to obtain your place in the celestial kingdom, you have to be living those laws on the earth. And if you're not living those laws on the earth, you're not going to obtain your place in the celestial kingdom. The promise of the setting and order of the house of Jacob was clearly foretold in a proclamation to all the kings of the world and president of the United States. The statement from the Council of the Twelve Apostles was sent around the world in April of 1845. Quote, God will assemble the natives, the remnant of Joseph in America, and make them a great and strong and powerful nation, and he will civilize and enlighten them, and will establish a holy city, a temple, and a seat of government among them, which is is to be called Zion. Now, this is really interesting because this was something that the Council of the Twelve Apostles after the death of Joseph Smith wrote up. Okay, they're angry about Joseph Smith. The the government, the Gentiles are their enemies. They've chosen, the, the Gentiles have chosen to become the enemies of God. So they're trying to say, well, this is going to happen. And maybe it is, maybe it's not. I think it's Third Nephi chapter 9 that talks about this to a point, or at least you can like, you can tease that out of the revelation. But anyway, continuing on. There shall be his tabernacle, his sanctuary, his throne, and the seat of government for the whole continent of North and South America forever. In short, it will be to the Western Hemisphere what Jerusalem is to the East. And there the Messiah will visit them in person, and the old saints who will then have been raised up from the dead will be with him. And he will establish his kingdom and laws over all the land. To the city and to its several branches or stakes shall the Gentiles seek, as to a standard of light and knowledge. Yea, the nations and their kings and nobles shall say, Come, and let us go to the mount, or to the Mount Zion, to the to the temple of the Lord, where His holy priesthood stand, to minister continually before the Lord, where we may be instructed more fully and receive the ordinances of remission and of sanctification and the redemption and redemption and thus be adopted into the into the family of Israel and identified in the same covenants covenants of promise the despised and degraded dis, are degraded sons of the forest who wander in dejection and sorrow and suffered reproach shall then drop his disguise and stand forth in manly dignity and exclaim to the Gentiles who have envied and sold him and he will say I am Joseph does my father yet live and that is a reference to uh, Joseph the son of Jacob or Yaakov back in uh, the book of Genesis or in other words I am a descendant of Joseph who was sold into Egypt Okay, so now it's trying to say Joseph Smith. And he was a pure Ephraimite, Ephraimite, by the way, which drives me a little bit nuts when people are like, Joseph Smith's going to come back and he's going to be the Davidic servant. Well, how can a Davidic servant who is of the house of David, who is of the uh, David, son of Jesse, is a Jew, but Joseph Smith is a pure Ephraimite? 
And people will say, Joseph Smith's a Davidic servant. Well, there's more than one servant in the end. But Joseph Smith himself is a pure Ephraimite. He is not a Jew. He actually, his lineage comes from royalty in Scotland. Anyway, but continuing on. I am a descendant of that Joseph who was sold into Egypt. You have hated me and sold me and thought I was dead. But lo, I live and am heirs to the inheritance, titles, honors, priesthood, scepter, crown, throne, and eternal life and dignity of my fathers who live forevermore. We're on page 270 if you're reading along, and we're at 84%. Um, that's actually 84% of the whole thing, because whatever. Anyway, that's both parts. He will be, or uh, he shall then be ordained, washed, anointed with holy oil, and arrayed in fine linen, even in the glorious and beautiful garments and royal robes of the high priesthood, which is after the order of the sons of God, and shall enter into the congregation of the Lord, even into the holy of holies, where. There to be crowned with authority and power, which shall never end. The Spirit of the Lord shall then descend upon him like the dew upon the mountains of Hermon, like refreshing showers of rain upon the flowers of paradise. His heart shall expand with knowledge, wide as eternity, and his mind shall comprehend the vast creation of his God. And his eternal purpose and redemption, glory, and exaltation, which was uh, devised in heaven before the worlds were organized, but made manifest in these last days for the fullness of the Gentiles and for the exaltation of Israel. He shall also behold his Redeemer and be filled with his presence, while the cloud of his glory shall be seen in the temple. End quote. And that was the writings of Parley P. Pratt, pages 1 through 16. Now let me just say, a lot of these people believe that Joseph Smith is God the witness. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Joseph Smith taught that God the witness or the Holy Ghost had to come and take a body. He was waiting to come and take a body to come do the same or similar things as Jesus Christ did. Indicating that Joseph, or Joseph Smith knew that God the witness was still waiting, had not yet come to take a body. Now, a lot of these people believe that Joseph Smith is the Holy Ghost. But section 130, Joseph Smith receives a revelation where he's told that the Father and the Son have bodies of flesh and bone, but the Holy Ghost, at that time, had not received a body. Joseph Smith had a body. He received the revelation with mortal mortal flesh wrapped around his spirit. And then if you want to get really interesting, uh, go and read a revelation of the pre-mortal God the Witness or pre-mortal Holy Ghost who in section 45 of the Doctrine Covenant, I think it's 45, it might be 50, who is giving a revelation to Joseph Smith, who has already seen, Joseph Smith has already seen the Father and the Son. But this individual, he gives up a little clue, and he says, the day will come when you, you shall see me and know that I am. 
That's because the revelation that Joseph Smith was receiving was directly from God the witness who had not yet appeared to Joseph Smith at all. And God the witness in his pre-mortal form is given a revelation to Joseph Smith wherein he says, and the day will come when you shall see me and know that I am. That's because God the Creator, the Father, God the Redeemer, Jesus, and God the Witness, the Holy Ghost, stand above Joseph Smith, who was one who was mighty and strong. He was an Elias sent to prepare the way for the foundation of Zion and Zion's redemption. He is not God the Witness. He is not the Testator, who is referred to as the Holy Ghost. But people time and time again will say, Joseph Smith is the Holy Ghost, even though that contradicts other things, and you can show it to them, and they don't care. They're like the Jews. The Jews will make up all kinds of excuses because they're going to hold to their false traditions no matter what you say to them. Not even Jesus Christ could change their minds. Jesus Christ could quote scripture and, and show clearly the truth and they don't care because they had preconceived ideas about the way things were, and they were not going to listen to Jesus Christ. And they're not going to listen to me. They're going to continue on believing that Joseph Smith is God the Witness or the Holy Ghost, and they'll believe he's the Davidic servant too, even though Joseph Smith was a pure Ephraimite. He is Shiloh. In Genesis, it says that the keys will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Now, if Joseph Smith was a Jew, the keys would not have departed from Judah when Peter, James, and John gave him the keys because they would have gone from a Jew to a Jew. But the fact of the matter is, when Peter, James, and John gave the keys to Joseph Smith, it was going from the house of Judah with Peter, James, and John to a pure Ephraimite who was not of the house of Judah, who was Joseph Smith, who is Shiloh. The keys will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And a lot of people want to believe, oh, that's Jesus. Okay, well, when the keys departed from John the Baptist to Jesus, they went from a Jew to a Jew. So the keys did not depart from Judah at that time either. But they did depart from the house of Judah when they were given to a pure Ephraimite who is Joseph Smith who cannot be the Davidic servant because in order to be the, the Davidic servant you have to be partly of the house of Judah which Joseph Smith was not part of the house of Judah. I'm sorry if you believe the speculations of Parley P. Pratt and Orson Pratt and John Taylor and whoever else had their speculations. They are wrong. And just because they said it doesn't mean it's true. But even though I divulge these things and I, I, I you know, bring all these things out, people will hear it and they will continue on with their false traditions because they believe the lie that is not backed up by revelation and confirmation by the Holy Spirit. 
And God sends them strong delusion that they might be damned because they did not love the truth. They believe in false doctrine. They don't get confirmation of the Holy Spirit. They don't get revelation of the Holy Spirit. They go on with their ideas and they teach them as doctrines. But they're the commandments and the thoughts and, and of men mingled with Scripture. And sometimes they're not even mingled with Scripture. It's just their ideas. And they teach them as doctrine. And you can try to set them in order, but they're under strong delusion because they don't care. Jesus dealt with these people. I have to deal with these people. It's the way people are in all ages of, of the history of this earth. And in fact, the reason why there is a remnant is because there is only a small group of people who will actually break free from their false traditions and begin to see the light of the truth of the setting and order that is happening now among you. The house of Jacob was set in order when Joseph of Egypt came out of his bondage and prison to take his wife's rightful place as ruler. Under similar conditions, Joseph's descendants will come out of their bondage and servitude to become rulers over the world. The setting and order of God's house is to be more than a religious rearrangement. According to the prophet Joseph Smith, the word house implies the whole kingdom, which extends to both the religious and political spectrum of God's rule. According to Bishop John Coyle, who often accurately prophesied future events, the setting and order would cover first the church, and then the state, and then the nation. This means the setting and order will encompass at least one religious and two political arenas. The Lord has said the inhabitants of the earth shall be made to feel the wrath and indignation and chastening hand of the Almighty God until the consumption decree decreed hath made a full end of all nations. Doctrine and Covenants, section 87, verse 6. The Lord told of the time when his house would be in order on the earth, when the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and also they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. So this root of Jesse comes from the house of Judah, because, well, the Davidic servant, right? David, David's father's Jesse. Jesse is of the house of Judah. And in that day shall a root of Jesse, or the Davidic servant, which shall stand for an ensign to the people, and to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversities of Judah shall be cut off. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 9 through 10 and 13. The Lord is going to clear the board of anything that may conflict or hinder his setting and uh, setting things in order. He will not tolerate or... Um, Oh, I'm sorry. He will not tolerate any competition. 
When it is in order, he will personally come to reign over the earth as king of kings in his house. And and that's why I keep saying, in order for Adam and Andayaman to happen, there has to be the setting in order. There has to be a people who will live all that God has commanded according to Genesis chapter 9 of the inspired translation. They, they redeem Zion below. Zion from above comes down with the church of the firstborn, and that is when... Adam and Andiamen happens, and not until then. The Lord has said that if you're not one, you're not mine. DNC section 38, verse 27. A pertinent question then is, if we are not one, who do we belong to? And furthermore, it is obvious that if we are not one in the United Order, then we are certainly out of order. So that's the end of the reading for today. Uh, When we come back on tomorrow, we will continue with the conclusion, chapter 18, starting on page 272. So, thank you everyone for listening to the program. And uh, I'm just not going to take any phone calls. This is, I'm pretty much just podcasting it from this point out. So, anyway, I'm sure that'll change a thousand times before the end of everything. But, um... Just thank you, everyone, for listening to the program. Take care, everyone. God bless, and goodbye.